0: tough one this week because I have to preach the same sermon uh, this week before Easter and then after Easter, okay? And so God really led me to, in light of Easter, in light of the resurrection, what our hope is. What our hope is. We've been doing so much looking back that I want to look forward. And let me just start with this question right now. Do you have hope? Do you? Because I, I, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I talk to so many Christians today who are hopeless. They look at our world, uh, they look at things that are going on, and they grumble, they complain. We should be ashamed of ourselves when we're that way. Our hope is awesome. And I want to take us to the end this morning, and I guess what I've found as a pastor that even when it comes to the end, so many Christians are are confused about the actual end to which we should be hoping in. And one, I think it's because we just don't talk about it that much, and two, I think oftentimes when we do talk about it, we get it all wrong. And so we assume that our hope is uh, this place that we go to when we die, what we call heaven. Can I ask you to do something right now? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Imagine heaven. What'd you see? My guess is, is that you didn't see much. Because we've turned it into such abstract terms that we can hardly even picture this. Now, do you know that the Bible speaks very little about going to heaven when you die? <laughs> and that that isn't our final hope? The goal of God in his gospel is not escaping this world for a place called heaven. Yes, heaven is important for those who die in this interim state between the first and second comings of Christ, but heaven is not the end of the world. Let's go to the end. Revelation 21. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read two chunks out of Revelation 21 and 22. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost, and from the spring of the water of life. And then skipping to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there, there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him, and they will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. This is the end. This is our hope. This is the ultimate end for which God created the world. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's new heavens, new earth. This is the goal of God's gospel it's new creation look at verse 5 God says behold I am making everything new new now also tucked away in the text it says that that the earth is passing away and I don't want you to be fooled by that Um, I want you to understand this in its context it simply means the earth as we know it I'm standing on what will be one day new earth. Because the Greek language has two words for new. It has the word netos, which means new in terms of time. It means young. It means brand new. Then it has the word kinos, which means new in terms of quality. It means to restore something or to repair something, to take something that is old and to bring it back to its original state. That's the word that's used here. In fact, it's the same in Hebrew in Isaiah 65 or 7, where two, God says, behold, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. That idea of new there is not something altogether new, but renewed something that's become old and broken is now become new and repaired that's why for the Jews uh, the whole thing uh, their whole mission is, is, is summed up in, in these two words tikkun olam tikkun olam simp- simply means to repair the whole it's this idea that God when he comes is going to repair and renew and restore the whole So people going to heaven is not the main message of the Bible. It's God redeeming, it's God restoring, it's God's, God resurrecting, it's the gospel of new creation, of God taking what's old, and rather than just disposing it like a piece of garbage, he's going to repair it, he's going to make it new. Therefore, the hope of our resurrection is not just the promise that our souls are going to live forever. It's the promise that our bodies are going to live forever too. See, because God is going to do to our bodies exactly what we see him doing to Jesus' body on Easter. God doesn't just raise Jesus' soul. God raises his body, and God is going to do the same for us. Everything we see God doing in Jesus on Easter, he is one day going to do to us. And see, part of the problem today is that so many Christians, I think, have have bought into this Platonic dualism that a person is comprised of body, soul, and spirit. And see, what Platonic dualism does, it says that the body and the physical and the material world are bad and that the spiritual and the soul are good And that salvation then is God saving me from this bad body. And then their spirituality becomes things like, I, I beat my body, I deny my body, I deny my flesh, I don't drink, I don't taste, I don't touch. And what I described right now sounds good to many of you. It's because of how we've been taught to think. What I just described is called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was one of the great heresies that the early church warred against. Listen to Colossians, where Paul, you can hear it right here, Paul says, He says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or by what you drink or with regard to uh, all your religious festivals. He says, These are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Um, Skipping down now to verse 28, he says, Since you died with Christ to to the elemental forces of this world, why as though you, you act as if you still belong to the world? where you submit to its rules, the rules like don't handle, don't taste, do not touch. He says these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish, are based on merely human commands and teachings. He says such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But in the end, they lacked any value in restraining sensual indulgence. He's taking it on. Who made your body? Who made the material world? God did. And can God make anything that is inherently bad? See, the reason why we feel the badness of our bodies, I mean, mine is breaking down. It's getting old. It's sore all the time when I play sports. My hair is getting gray. I mean, I can feel it. I could list ten other things too. (laughs) The reason why is not because physicality in and of itself is bad. It's infected with the curse. Just like everything else. To decay and then to die. But here's the deal. God wants to redeem our bodies. He wants to bring new creation to our bodies because Jesus did not just come to this world as a soul, but he became flesh and blood so he could redeem flesh and blood. And the hope of new creation is that someday those of us who are in Christ are going to be given an incorruptible physicality. That we're going to be what we are right now. I know that sounds a little depressing, but minus all the bad parts. In fact, if we could see your resurrected body and and, and what it would be, I like how C.S. Lewis puts this. If we could see that right now, we would be tempted to fall on the ground and worship. It will be that glorious. That beautiful. That's stunning. Sometimes when someone gets really sick or aged, we, we, we say something like, you know, they're just a shadow of their former self. And that's what we are right now. We're 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 just a shadow of our of of, of what we will be. Now that I'm um, getting quite a bit older. I know, it's a relative term, isn't it? And added to the fact that I was a youth pastor, so I know a lot of people. And a lot of people, especially with means like Facebook, um, I I just get aware of of when students either get divorced, or I'm aware of when tragedies happen. And there's one in particular right now, Kara Thewlis, who was just a champion of my youth ministry. You know, she's, she's a grown woman, married to a husband, four children, and she's, she's dying of cancer. She's dying. And I'm following this on her Facebook, and even yesterday she hi- took a picture of, highlighted in the text, Uh, the psalm where it says it's just good to be near to the Lord. It is good to be near him, to take refuge in him. And, uh, I mean, she has the hope, like we all have the hope, that someday that body right now that's full of cancer is going to be redeemed and restored and made stunningly glorious. What an awesome hope we have. And see what God is is doing to Jesus on Easter, he's going to do for the whole creation. I mean, this is why Romans 8 says, All creation groans like a woman in childbirth. It's it's groaning to be set free, to be liberated from this cancer that we call the curse. It too longs to be made new. And here we read in verse 5 where God says, I am making all things new. Saving souls is not God's final goal. New creation, a new humanity on a repaired earth. Remember Jesus' message? What was it? It's the kingdom of heaven. And see, I think so many just think the kingdom of heaven is is, is heaven. It's the place where we go when we die. But, but Jesus said, no, the kingdom is here. Jesus is bringing heaven to earth. He is establishing his rule on earth. And the gospels show us what the world looks like when God's king is here on earth and his kingdom is being unleashed. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. It's new creation. Heaven is coming to earth. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Where? On earth. As it is in heaven. It's a prayer to God. God, bring heaven to earth. Because God loves the world. And his kingdom plan is to repair it, to restore it, to make all things new. He is going to bring heaven to earth. And see, Revelation 11 verse 15 says, the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's where we live right now. We are in the state where creation is not there yet, but it's been infused with new creation. And we're waiting. We're waiting for what? We're waiting for Ephesians 1 verse 10, where, where it says, all things in heaven and on earth will be brought together under one head, that is Christ. See, heaven one day is going to marry earth like a husband does a wife. They're going to become one. God's space is going to be brought perfectly into our space. Because here's the deal. Ever since Eden was lost, there's been a great divorce, a great divide, a great chasm between heaven and earth, between God's space and our space. It's why we groan right now. It's why creation groans. We've been made for God. This world's been made for God. And that's why the imagery of verse 2 of chapter 21, look at it. it. says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, not just coming down out of heaven from God, but how is it coming down? It's prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Do you realize the end of the world will be a wedding day? Heaven and earth are going to marry and they're going to once again be one? And see, what we're really talking about is a return to the beginning because it's a return to the Garden of Eden. You have the Tree of Life here. You have a river flowing out of it, just like in Edom, except this time, instead of it being a garden, it's going to be this glorious city. It's going to be stunning. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be physical. It's going to be material. But it's more than bricks and mortar. The City of God, thank people. A stunning, glorious, beautiful people without stain, blemish, or defect. Now, what's this going to be like? I want us to know some things. I want us to, 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 when we close our eyes, to literally be able to imagine some things because the text gives us some specific things that describe this awesome reality for which we hope. I'm going to give you four things. The first feature of our hope. Look at verse 2. Come on. Verse 1. Sorry about that. Um, It says, And I saw the new heavens and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now listen to this. And there was no longer any sea. (laughs) No sea. Does that depress you who fish? (laughs) Or like to swim, or like to boat. That's not what it's talking about. There'll be lakes, there'll be ponds, I mean, we, we'll even have the river. This is tapping into the vi- biblical view of the world. The sea is a metaphor in the Bible for what? Chaos, the abyss. It's the home, the sea is the home to Satan and all his minions. The, the dragon lives in the sea, the beast lives in the sea. They always come out of the sea. The sea is their space. Jesus drove the legion of demons, where? Into the sea. Luke's gospel actually says, into the abyss. Pharaoh's army, which is more than an army, representing the spiritual forces opposing God, where they drowned in the sea. The absence of the sea simply means this. No more Satan, no more beast, no more dragon, no more of his minions. And the people who are saying amen right now are the people who understand the devastation. That Satan and his minions, just, they, they, they're here right now. They hate the image of God that's, that's stamped in you. They want to destroy it. Satan roams like a roaring lion, says the Bible, seeking to devour and to destroy you, us. I think it's going to be hard for us to imagine what this hope is on this side of it. Just what a world with, with no Satan and no serpent and And no beast and no dragon constantly just doing what they do. The second feature, now skip over to chapter 22, verse 3. It says, No longer will there be any curse. What's the curse? Well, let me just help you visualize this. Just got back from Africa. It's so crazy to talk to this person and this person and, and to touch this person, to hug this person with AIDS. And see, what AIDS is to the body, or maybe something more relevant to us, what, what, what cancer is to the human body, the curse is to this world. And it entered this world when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. At that moment, not only did this great divorce occur, not only were Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, but the whole world was infected with the cancer of sin. In fact, scientists talk about an old earth. And I personally don't buy into that, because I think the moment when the curse Infected the wor- world every last inch of god 's good creation was infected with this deadly cancer, resulting in the world getting very old, very fast now living on this side too of of the new heavens and the earth, I think it 's really almost impossible for us to even begin to imagine what life would be like without the curse because listen, we were born into it it's All we've ever known. What's this going to be like? Because this is our hope. Well, look at verse 4. I think 4 fleshes this out. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. This week I've been thinking a lot about death. First I was uh, on my couch with my two boys. We like watching these 30 for 30s and they had one on the life of, of Jimmy Valvano and As they're interweaving the story about that 1983 run where they won the championship, which was a miracle in itself, also interwoven into this whole story was him getting cancer ten years later and then dying of it nine months later. And I'm just sitting there. uh, My boys, um, both kind of have their Gabe has his feet on my lap. Bennett has his head on my shoulder. And I'm just weeping. I'm, I'm I'm crying. It was a beautiful story. It ends with death. March Madness. I mean, how can I not think about Derek? And coming up to two years. Here's the greatness of God's gospel we get to look at the cross. Because what must have appeared to Jesus' followers as the worst, the darkest, most hellish moment ever, what's it turned into? A resurrection. And the tables are completely turned. I mean, the most ugly reality becomes the most beautiful thing. The darkest becomes the brightest. The the lowest becomes the highest. The most devastating defeat becomes the ultimate victory. And so it's going to be with all of our crosses, all of our hurts, all of our sufferings. They're, ter- they're going to be turned into a resurrection. And it's not like God's going to just kind of like snap his fingers and, and, and make that all go away as if it had never happened. It, it, it's going to be better than that. Because all of our crosses, all of our hurts, all of our pains, all of our losses, they're all going to be taken up into the hope of the resurrection and in the new creation. And there's a thought about Jesus' resurrected body that just blows me away when I think about it. That his resurrected glorious body still bears the marks and the scars of his suffering. He still looks like a lamb slain. Because it's a big part of his glory, of his future glory. Same with our scars and our wounds and our suffering. It's going to be a big part of our future glory. Because what God is going to do is he's going to take all of this and, and make us into something greater than if it had never happened. And I'll even add our failures to that and our mistakes. And the way that we've hurt other people. Every tear will be turned into a diamond into your life. Every hurt will be spun into gold. And here's the deal. We're not talking about something that's just future. We are getting a taste of it right now. I mean, don't you see how your suffering and your wounds and your weaknesses and your hurts, that when you bring them to God and and you trust him in the midst of it, how he's working these things out in your life, not to make you less than, but to make you more than, and to make you glorious? Kara right now. Her body filled with cancer is one of the most beautiful people I know. It's stunning. Only the gospel. Christian, this is our hope. And I'll tell you, this is why the early church could face lions, why they could be thrown into the arena, why they could be burned at stake, and they did it dancing. They did it singing. They did it with joy, because they had this hope. Look at verse 4. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. I mean, I, I, I don't even know how to convey this. I, I, I know that Psalm 58 verse, or Psalm 56 verse 8 says, you, O oh Lord, you, you collect my tears in a bottle. And this whole idea comes right out of that culture because at at all funerals there would be a a tear bottle that would be passed around and and each person would put one of their tears in that bottle and then it would be given to the one who who had lost that person. But now it says not only does God collect our tears, every one of our tears, but he's going to wipe every one of our tears away. And this just shows me our father's Heart. He doesn't just sympathize with our pain and suffering. He empathizes with it. He is a fellow sufferer. And he weeps. And he's going to wipe every tear from our face. In fact, I find this to be really cool. There's going to be a reality in this new Eden. Chapter 22, verse 2, talks about the tree of life, and it will bear branches, and these branches will provide leaves that will be for the healing of the nations. And I think, wow, even in the Garden of Eden, there's going to be a tree of life that still is providing healing. And uh, then when I think about how the Greek works, the Greek has two words for tree— And every time in the New Testament, it uses one word for tree, dendron. But this is the one time where it uses the word zulon. Zulon doesn't even mean tree. It means wood. And there's a place in the New Testament where it quotes the Old Testament where where it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And that's the other place in the New Testament where it's zulon. The tree of life is going to be a cross. The third feature, 21 verse 3. Can someone stand and read that? His dwelling, his, his, his Shekinah. He's going to be downtown on Main Street. God. This has always been God's heart, hasn't it? I mean, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It says that God walked with, with Adam and Eve in the, in the cool of the day. Can you see that, by the way? Can you imagine that? I can. I can see God kind of in the middle, Adam and Eve on his right and left, and every day, hey, Adam, how'd it go today? You know, how, how are those animals doing? How did that birth go today? I mean, Eve, how, how, how did your day go? Every day! It's God's heart. And then they get kicked out, and, and, and God doesn't even then. But throughout the biblical story, we see a God who longs to dwell with his people. When they live in tents in a wilderness, God says, Build me a tent. And in Leviticus 26, uh, verse 11, he says, build me this mishkan, build me this tent. And what we expect to say, God to say next is, so that I may live in, in that room next to you. But rather, he says, build me this tent so I can walk among you. Then they move into the promised land, and they move from tents into houses, and then God says, well, build me a house. I want a house in the neighborhood, so that I may walk among you. And then in Christ, we see a God who literally takes on flesh, and he walks literally amongst them. I mean, this is our God. He longs to be among us. He longs for his space to be our space. It's the whole story of the Bible. Now, it says here in our text that in the New Jerusalem, there's not going to be a temple. There's not going to be a mishkan. There's not going to be a house. Why not? Well, here's what's kind of cool. In, in the space where God lived in the tabernacle, which is called what? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The Holy of Holies. I don't know if you know this, but it was a perfect cube. It was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. Because it, it, it housed the perfection of God. The temple it was the same thing. It was just three times the size. The Holy of Holies there, too, is a perfect cube. Well, when you look at it, I think it's verse 17 or 18 or 16. There you have it. You have a perfect square. In fact, literally, it's going to be 12 stadia or 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's going to be a perfect cube. In other words, this is the Bible's way of saying there's no need for a temple because the whole city will be holy of holies. Fulfilling Isaiah and Habakkuk's prophecy that the whole earth will be full of the glory of God. finally, what I think is by far the most spectacular feature of this hope that is to come. In fact, I think everything I've just mentioned is, is, is not even second or third to this. Where it says in chapter 22, verse 4, And they will see his face. I mean, seeing one's face speaks of intimacy. To do this with your spouse, to just hold their face uh, close to you. I did this with my son recently at this camp where we had to uh, just stand in front of each other like this. And we just had to look at each other. (laughs) And we had to look, and it went on for two minutes. And I know that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but I'm telling you, to just look into the, the face of my son at about 25 seconds, I just started crying, and I wept, and I wept. And he, of course, just standing there all stoic and tough. (laughs) But I felt that love and that intimacy. You have no idea how badly your heart longs to see his face. I mean, imagine a a, a loved one who's passed away, who you haven't seen for some time, and even that, like how you just, oh, it would be so good to see their face. Forgive me for putting it this way, but the best sex in the best marriage will, will only be but a fraction of what it will be like to see him face to face. And you know what this moment is going to be like for God? The text tells us this day is going to be a wedding day. And we are going to come to him, as as Revelation 21, verse 2 says, prepared as a bride. But look at verse 9. We didn't read this, but let me read it. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came. He said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven from God. Who's his bride? Who's Christ's bride? It's the new Jerusalem. It's us. And see, if that happened right now, I believe we'd all be raptured up so we could be part of this bridal processional. Yesterday I was at a wedding. I I, I performed it. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of my favorite things to do at a wedding. It's just to stand next to that groom especially when the groom has not yet seen his bride. And that's the case yesterday because we're up there standing. We're waiting for the doors to be open. I turned and I looked at him and I said, John, have you seen her yet today? He goes, no, I haven't seen her. And literally the door is open and she steps out. And I hear this loud gasp. I literally thought I was going to have to pick him up off the ground. <laughs> and I peeked. I looked at him. (laughs) The look on his face. When we come down that aisle prepared, he's going to gasp. Why? Because we're so beautiful. Why does the text refer to Jesus? Not as King Jesus, not as the Lord, not as the lion. How does the text refer to Jesus? The lamb. See, the lamb reminds us of why we are beautiful. We've been washed, we've been cleansed, we've been made glorious through the blood of the Lamb. I promise you, on this day, we will look stunning. It's our hope. Now, what does this all mean for us? It means with the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll be celebrating in one week, new creation has begun in our world. And we, as, as his bride right now, are not here to just wait around for heaven. We have a job to do. Jesus says, you're the, you're the new Jerusalem right now. A, a city set on a hill, given a mission. And yes, it is to save souls. It's to do what Haran said. We speak it. We tell people about this. But because it's new creation, it's about more than souls. It's also about restoring neighborhoods and redeeming cities and reconciling races and repairing God's good creation. Because what we are right now, we are the face of Him to the world. And our job is to wipe away tears. That's our job. And I see a world that's broken. I see a world that's crying. I see a wor- world that's in so much hurt, so many tears, and we have so much to offer. Now, who gets this future? Who gets it? The really good ones? Now, well, there's really one description of the people will be part of Christ's bride on the last day. And before I read this verse, can I just ask, do you want to be there? Does your heart long for this? Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Come. Let the one who desires to take the free gift of the water of life come. It's not for the proud. It's not for the self sufficient. It's not for the self righteous. It's for thirsty, thirsty people. Do you know your need? Because with him, all you need is need. That's all we give to him. Are you thirsty? I'm thirsty for this. What a hope we have. Let's pray. God, we know that you're We know that your whole thing ends, Lord, with, with come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> and more than anything else, God, we just long for that day. We long for you to come, to bring your final and ultimate salvation and redemption to this earth, into this place, to these bodies, to these souls. And we groan. And we're thirsty. And I pray, God, that you would put more groaning in your church. And you would create more thirst in your people. And you would cause us to fix our eyes even that much more on you. The author and perfecter of our faith. And the hope that we have of your final redemption. In Jesus' name.